Before we get back to the main story, I want to talk for a minute about how the Maccabees were remembered over the centuries. Because this story is not canon, it was largely unknown in Europe until the 10th and 11th centuries, when some when some ancient Greek and Roman sources started to be translated into European languages. Now, these Christian medieval Europeans probably didn't care for Jews too much, but they loved the Maccabees. They couldn't get enough of them. And we know this because they wrote about the Maccabees and how cool they thought they were, and they drew out some of the coolest scenes from these from this story and put them in encyclopedias and stuff like that for people to study. If you go look at these pictures, a lot of them coming from the 13th and 14th centuries, they're very funny looking because they draw these late Hellenistic warriors and make them look like medieval Europeans. They're wearing male shirts over gambesons and medieval helmets and instead of Spears, they got halberds, and you can see, like, crest-shaped shields and all kinds of stuff that's anachronistic, out of its place and time. This is pretty common in medieval art, by the way. It's a artistic choice that medieval artists pretty well always made. You can see a lot of Romans dressed like medieval Europeans and other biblical scenes and stuff like that. One extra little quirk from a lot of these pictures of the Maccabees is this story will come to feature elephants pretty soon for us. And a lot of these medieval European artists had never seen an elephant before, so you get to see their best guess as to what the Seleucids are riding while the Maccabees fight them. There's one scene from Maccabees that I'm particularly fascinated by, and it features an elephant, and I love looking at all the different versions over the centuries that all these different Europeans had put their spin on what an elephant might look like. And some of them are pretty close, where you have... It looks like they must have seen someone who had seen an elephant's drawing of an elephant. Other ones are close, but, you know, the nose is all wrong, and it's all... They're all kind of shaped like a horse a lot of the time. Some of them are even shaped more like giant cats. And it's so easy to get lost in all these different artists' interpretations of elephants that you forget what this picture is really of. And that's Judah's brother, Eleazar, underneath this giant creature and sticking a spear into its ribs. Welcome back to Religious Wars. This is episode two of our first series, The Hammer of Hanukkah. When we last left Judah, he was basking in glory over the defeat of Apollonius. And as much as that feat was very surprising and even kind of glorious, it didn't really do anything for Judah in terms of power or authority. It did bring him a bunch of new recruits. Books of Maccabees put Judah's number somewhere around 6,000 now, which modern historians say probably is pretty close, actually. But all these guys are still up in the mountains. They're up in an area of Israel called the Gophna Hills, and they can't really leave there. They can only do their terrorist raids on nearby communities. And by the way, a lot of these 6,000 guys here might not be very enthusiastic some of them may have heard about Judah's glorious defeat of Apollonius and decided, wow, this is the guy I need to follow. A lot of historians make a lot of hay about how strange the Jews were in this time period for monotheism and stuff like that, but there were a lot of Jewish communities who seemed to rally around Judah, much like a lot of Greek communities would around a Greek-style hero, which Judah kind of is. But a lot of these recruits would have been guys from villages that were horribly afraid of Judah and said, hey, we're 50 guys from this village. You're not going to attack us now that we're here to help, right? And another problem that Judah has here, aside from his victory being relatively hollow, is now the Seleucid government really knows he's there. It's possible that Apollonius and his response to Judah never went any higher than himself. It would have been the high priest in Jerusalem asking for help, that request went to Apollonius, and Apollonius eventually got ambushed and killed by Judah. It's because of his position. Apollonius was a kind of semi-independent local governor. But now Judah is going to get a military response from the Seleucid state. And it's going to come 
from a man named Saron. Now, Saron and Apollonius are kind of described as in the same position in Seleucid society, but Saron belongs to the military side of Seleucid affairs. And as much as the Seleucid state is involved in the response now, the Seleucid military was in a way that Apollonius wasn't a military figure, but a political one. And this Sauron guy, he's very much a military figure. But we know still that it's still not a super high priority for Antonacus and the Seleucid state. We know this because Sauron kind of has his hands cuffed in this response. Normally, he would lead a group of mostly, if not entirely, professional soldiers. But he can't do that because there's a giant parade going on for Antonacus in Daphne, one of his cities. Now, obviously, if there was a lot of concern over the Maccabees and what they were getting up to, they would have taken some guys out of that parade or taken some guys from garrisons, but that doesn't appear to have happened and it looks like Suron would have picked up a lot of guys the same way Apollonius did. People who were sometimes fighters, people who could fight, had some armor lying around. There's a good chance that a lot of guys in Apollonius's first army were in Suron's army to go ta- attack the Maccabees again. In the last episode, we said that Apollonius represented a kind of level one for Judah if his quest was a video game. Well, Suron is definitely level two in that he is a bit more competent, has a greater understanding of military affairs than Apollonius did. Part of the reason we know that is because there's one very obvious way into the Gophna Hills that is begging to be ambushed along, and that's the route Apollonius took. But Suron did not take that route. He took a route from the south, a much less obvious route into the Gophna Hills. Now, Siron had a problem here, too. If he had a regular army, it's likely he would have known if you want to avoid an ambush, you need to send out raiding parties and take flanking hilltops on your way down a path, but he didn't have a big enough force. It said that he had fewer than Judah, so probably around 5,000 guys. And if you keep sending out a few hundred guys to take the hills in front of you, eventually you have no army left. But Siron's hopeful that if he moves carefully and slowly, he can avoid an ambush because he is in some terrible terrain. We're told the path is too narrow for two camels to pass side by side. Now, Judah gets word that this second attack is coming, and it seems a little bit like he's caught off guard, probably just because of the direction it's coming from. It's not what he expected. And instead of bringing his entire... 6,000-man army to meet Suron and do another all-out ambush like he did against Apollonius. Judah's going to take a small force and go on a long march to meet Suron. Nobody knows exactly why Judah doesn't take his whole army with him. Some people think it's because he wanted to sneak up on Saron, and there's no way to do that with 6,000 guys in such hilly terrain. Some people think that Judah would have known a lot of his soldiers might have been spooked by Saron's real army, if he had a real army, which he didn't. And it could just be as simple as Judah only thinking he needs this many guys, or he's worried about losing, and if he does lose, he doesn't want the entire fight to be over. But for whatever reason, Judah takes a relatively small, we're not told how many, small detachment of men and marches through the night to meet Saron. It's worth talking for a minute here when I say march through the night, how impressive that is for a lot of these guys, because Judah is a fundamentalist. And there's a lot of old Jewish law around how to behave in warfare, and Judah follows it to the T. Part of that is fasting the night before any kind of operation. So these guys are hungry. They haven't eaten in probably like a day and a half. But in any case, Judah marches his small detachment of men, meets the head of Sauron's army, and quickly and almost without incident, kills Sauron and sends this second Seleucid army packing. Quick correction after last episode. I said that Judah killed 800 or so of Apollonius's men, but that was a mistake on my part. It was actually 
800 of Ceron's men in this engagement, not 800 of Apollonius's men in that fight. Probably fewer against Apollonius. Now, the victory that Judah won against Apollonius was a little bit hollow because it didn't mean that much. But defeating Ceron here is taking everything to a whole new level. First of all, there's the military expertise that Judah shows here. We don't know why he took fewer men, but it worked, so who's to say it was a bad idea? But even there, there's a level of military thinking going on that you don't really see earlier in this conflict. He takes these a small group, he has them disciplined enough that they aren't making all kinds of noise as they march through the woods, and he has them disciplined enough to stop chasing these Seleucids out into the open plain because... There's still not a fighting force that would be anywhere near capable of holding up against a Greek phalanx. But they know all that and behave like an army, like a military. So it's fair to say that this Maccabean army is a bit more than wild-out Jewish terrorists now. It's much more mature. To give us a sense of time here, the battle against both Saron and Apollonius take place in 166. So it's been three years since Matthias, Judah's father, stabbed the representative of the king and kicked off this whole thing. And you can say for the first three years, not much changed other than Judah's numbers kind of slowly growing. But in this year, defeating Apollonius and Saron, especially defeating Saron, really brings the Maccabees into a whole new league. It's likely that these two defeated Greeks' army armies made Judah's numbers swell even more, and with probably even more people who are not enthusiastic participants in this revolt. Judah, at this point, starts to become a bit more of a political figure than just a revolutionary one to his followers, to the people who are with him in the Gophna Hills. And we know this because he starts behaving a bit more thoughtfully, you could say. We're told here in 1 Maccabees that Judah divides his armies into units of thousands, units of hundreds, and units of tens, or units of fifties and tens, or something like that, and has commanders that all report back to him. Now, presumably, Judah never did that before because he didn't have to, and now he is becoming a bit more of a powerful figure. And his power doesn't seem to be just based on fear now. I mean, it is still. It's all, everybody's afraid of armies. But he has control of roads, it seems, anyway. This isn't expelled out explicitly anywhere. But he starts to be able to move around a bit more. Be able to go pretty close to Jerusalem, even, and not worry about an attack from Greeks in the garrisons. So now, Judah's in a position where he doesn't have just this gang of terrorists doing violence seemingly at random to whoever is unlucky enough to be in their path. Judah has, from nothing basically, evoked real political power. And we know this because he uses that, he flexes that in a way he never could have before the defeat of Sauron, and he calls a muster, a grand meeting of everybody who's in his kind of sort of domain in this revolt whether they like it or not. And it's going to be at a place called Mizpah, which is about halfway between where Judah was, his hideout, where he's most comfortable in the Gophna Hills and the city of Jerusalem. Now at this muster at Mizpah is where Judah does some of his most interesting shenanigans and some of his smartest conniving, in my opinion. But before we get to that, we got to figure out what the response is going to be from Antonacus. Because remember, he's the big bad guy here. The guy who sacked the second temple after a non-Hellenizer was put on as high priest in Jerusalem. From his perspective here, he had to, he got betrayed while he was off warring in Egypt and he had to, you know, teach him a lesson, steal some of their stuff out of their temple. He didn't really anticipate this kind of backlash. And suddenly, two armies that aren't his but represent him have been defeated by some lowly rebel force. And he's got two dead 
Greek commanders, people in important positions who have things to do to make his empire run. What's Antonacus going to do to these people now that they've betrayed him and humiliated him when all he wanted to do was include him in the wonderful world of Hellenism? Well, to underscore how little this part of his empire means to him, Antonacus is not going to head an army to crush this rebellion. He's going off to Iran. He's got to go take on Babylon and stuff like that. But before he goes, he makes a slew of appointments, and it's going to be these new group of guys while he's off making war east this time from Jerusalem who are going to have to contend with the Maccabees now. The regent he leaves in charge of his entire empire, the acting king while he's off, is a guy named Lysias. And if we're going to stay with the video game level analogy, Lysias is a boss. Such a boss that he has too many things to do, too much administrative stuff to run, presumably bigger threats of barbarians off somewhere at the edge of the empire to deal with the Maccabees himself. So it's going to be other probable appointments from the king who are tasked with doing it, a guy named Nicanor and a guy named Georgius. Now, these guys, definitely a level up from Sauron. They have to muster troops like Sauron and Apollonius did, but they they have the backing of the great king, the regent, Lysias. So they're likely picking up some real professional fighters along the way to Jerusalem, or to the Gophna Hills. And they make camp at a place called Amos. Now, when Sauron made his attack on the Maccabees, he came kind of quick, tried to surprise them a bit. It's probably part of the reason why Judah took a small professional force with him rather than trying to wade his whole army through a, you know, through a kilometers-long march. Georgius and Nicanor do not have that option. They have too many guys, too many people are aware that they're coming, and Judah controls too much of the region near him now to be really... You can't sneak up on him anymore like you could. It's just not a feasible option anymore. But Nicanor and Georgias would have known about this great meeting that Judah was having at Mizpah. Now, at Mizpah, as Georgias and Nicanor making their march toward Judah, Judah has a kind of victory party. When he defeated Sauron, he kind of woke a lot of people up to his presence. I mean, everybody knew he was there. People were afraid of him. They didn't want to be raided and stuff like that. But he had, you could call it real political power, you know. And he was sort of using this opportunity at Mizpah to show off. He had uh, uh, the Torah that was desecrated by the Hellenizers. And he showed what they were fighting for. He recommitted this cause to a religious purpose, not a political one. The religious and the political were closely related, but not exactly the same. And part of the difference, I think, is at this big muster with, you have to imagine, a lot of guys who've done a lot of fighting for Judah and a lot of guys who aren't looking forward to doing any fighting and would kind of like it if this whole thing just, everything went back to normal. At this big... uh, show-off celebration instead of having a big party with a lot of great food and a lot of booze and stuff like that, Judah makes everybody fast. Nobody eats anything as a way to, you know, show devotion to God. It doesn't say so, but you have to imagine that this would have been kind of upsetting for a lot of people, might have been obvious to Judah. And like I said a couple times now, a lot of these Warriors of Judah probably have no interest in being warriors for Judah, doing it out of a kind of obligation. So what's Judah going to do with these guys? Judah says to a huge chunk of his warriors, followers, fellow rebels, whatever you want to call this group of so far completely victorious Jews, he says, you can go home. He says that it's the builders of houses, the betrothed, the planters of vineyards, and the faint-hearted who can leave. So basically, if you 
do important things in this territory that I guess I now control, go and keep doing those important things, and if you're faint-hearted, don't want to be here, you can go home too. We're talking thousands of people here, maybe most of his force. So all these people stream out of camp in all these different directions, and news of this makes it back to Nicanor and Georgius down at Amos, and they think that they might have an opportunity. We should talk here for a minute again about what kind of army the Maccabees are going to be fighting, what kind of forces Nicanor and Georgius have here. And again, nowhere, and again, no real way to know, just like with Apollonius and Saron. According to 1st Maccabees, these guys are coming with 40,000 spearmen and 7,000 cavalry. Almost certainly not. Probably like a quarter of that, maybe. Probably not even that. But whatever size force they're working with, they're going to take off a small detachment and try and do a sneak attack on the Maccabee camp at Mizpah. Give them a taste of their own medicine after so many ambushes that the Maccabees have pulled off. So, Georgius goes off on a fast march through the night to try and make it to Mizpah before Judah can know he's coming. But the Seleucids underestimate the support for Judah in the region, and Judah hears about the march before they can get to him. So, Judah's in a bit of a bind here. He's got a professional Greek army marching toward him. They've got the jump on him. It's possible that if... Judah knew this was coming the whole time. He might have done everything very differently and just ambushed them like he had Zeron's army. They're kind of coming through the same route, but they're too far past, too far up the hills for Judah to make a good attack anywhere that would be advantageous like all of his other battlefields have been. So an ambush is out. He could stay at Mizpah and face this small detachment of the Greek forces, but there's a problem with that too. Mizpah is a part of the plains. It's out of the hills, and we'll take First Maccabee's word for it for convenience sake and say he's coming with 5,000 soldiers and 1,000 cavalry, and there is no way Judah's army is going to be able to withstand those kind of numbers on a flat space. And if you're thinking, how can you ambush these guys so easily, it seems, but be completely out of your depth if they have any idea what's going on? Isn't it still kind of just a fight? Well, apparently not. Judah seems horrified by the idea of letting his soldiers go toe-to-toe in an open field with a Greek phalanx. So, even though it is probably a smaller force than Judah has now, That option is untenable, so Judah can't meet this enemy that is approaching him, because he would probably lose. Judah can't stay and defend his camp from this enemy, because again, he'd probably lose. Not only is he at a huge disadvantage in terms of, if you believe him, numbers, but also fighting quality and cohesion. So, instead of... A regular, classic at this point, Maccabean ambush. Judah's still going to use surprise, but this time he's going to use it to kill two birds with one stone. Georgius in Nicanor's camp at Amos is about 27 kilometers away from Mizpah and where Judah's great muster just happened. Georgius planned to march through the night to get to the Maccabees for a surprise attack in the morning. And his march went well enough, but, like we said, Judah had heard about it. Too late to do anything about it, but early enough to get this plan into action. Judah got his whole army to leave Mizpah the same night that Georgius was heading toward it. So you have a situation here where Judah has his army marching toward the enemy enemy army, but just slightly to the south of it. They're walking past each other on different routes, only a few kilometers apart. If I'm making the movie, you can imagine the Maccabees up against the edge of a cliff while 
Seleucid soldiers are passing over them. Again, they were kilometers apart, but it's still very creative. Where's Judah going, though? Because he's leaving Mizpah. Judah's going to Amos to try and sack that camp where Nicanor and the rest of the detachment force are. Now keep in mind, at Mizpah, Judah and his army didn't have a religious celebration as much as they had a solemn fast to celebrate their great victories. So these are all guys who haven't eaten in like a day and a half at least, maybe longer. And now they're going on a 27-kilometer march in the dark. Now, Judah's craziness here goes completely unnoticed by anybody else in the hills. So when Georgius and his 5,000 soldiers and 1,000 cavalry, but probably about a quarter of that, get to Mizpah, they assume the Maccabees have fled. It's possible they might have looked for a particular direction Judah and his forces may have gone, but they couldn't see any particular direction because Judah had sent thousands of people home in all directions just before. So with nothing else to do, assuming the Maccabees were off hiding somewhere, Georgius makes camp for the night, gets his soldiers a good night rest and some food, and they will go search for these rebels tomorrow. Meanwhile, Judah and his army are probably very close to the camp at Amos and completely unnoticed in the darkness. First and second Maccabees make the point of saying that when this ambush starts, the Maccabees are coming at the camp from downhill, so I like to assume that that was a choice Judah made. Okay, we're up real close. They can't see us. Now let's all get on this side, so we're running downhill, spear first into this camp whenever we decide that's the best thing to do. Well, they don't get to decide that's the best thing to do because at daybreak, someone from Nicanor's squad at Amos sees the Maccabees kind of, you know, hiding in the bushes, waiting to pounce. That guy sounds the alarm, but it's too early in the morning. People are still just waking up. So there's only a small force of guys outside the front of the camp. They are steamrolled by the Maccabees. That first kind of protective force gets pushed back into the camp with the fighting. People in the camp panic and everybody just flees. The Maccabees begin a pursuit, but this massive force, if you believe the books, scatters in a bunch of different directions, goes to a bunch of different cities. They can't really chase them that long because they don't have that many guys. And plus, Georgius, with the thousand foot, with the 5,000 footmen and the 1,000 horse, is still coming up your rear back toward Amos. So, Judah recalls his pursuing soldiers, gets everybody back to camp, and gets ready for the next wave of battle that's coming. When Georgius and his men, who Judah's never seen at this point, he's only known were on the way, crested the first hill and could see their old camp completely destroyed with, who knows how many at this point, 2,500, 3,000, 4,000? Angry Maccabees in there who had just defeated a much larger force of their fellow Greeks. Still, though, you would think Greek honor, the ethos of the heroes, etc., would instill a certain kind of courage in Georgius and his men to dig deep and make this happen, destroy these rabble-rousers, especially after they'd been hoodwinked by them in such a silly annoying way. It's a lot of marching to not do any fighting. But they don't fight. They just keep going. They follow the other. They're fleeing comrades. Why? Why is this? The books of Maccabees say they were just completely terrified by what they imagined the Maccabees did to Nicanor's force. Most modern historians seem to suggest that they just didn't have the numbers. Georgius and that's why they ran. They just saw this larger-than-themselves army encamped at this point. They didn't think uh, they could win. Now that Judah had successfully captured a Greek camp with a much smaller force, after a day of religious observance and fasting, after a march, after a kind of 
haphazard, thrown-together plan that he couldn't have had picked out from the beginning. There's a lot of reactive nature to Judah's thinking here, and part of what makes it so compelling, he's flying by the seat of his pants. Now, his army, after this amazing, improbable victory, finally gets to do a little bit of celebrating, and they loot Nicanor's camp. Now, this camp had been, you know, fled from and burned and destroyed in all of the fighting. So, you would think, what could possibly be at this camp? But if you believe First and Second Maccabees, it's all of the finest gold, silver, jewels, the best stuff you've ever seen. Interestingly, they don't talk about weapons, which would have been the only thing I imagine the Maccabees would have really cared about in this instance, because as amazing as this victory is, as amazing as all of their victories have been up to this point, they have to know that more is coming. I guess it is possible, though, that they get some time to enjoy some of these amazing objects that they just won from the Greeks and breathe a little bit here because Judah's relationship with the Seleucid Empire and the people around him now is very different than it once was. Judah isn't a very religious son of a priest who's furious about Hellenization. Now he is a political figure. He's proven through might that he has dominion over some people. And it doesn't say so in the Maccabees, but you can imagine he's almost doing some kind of tax collection. But instead of taxes, it's, you know, sons to fight in the army or food to feed the army or whatever. Now, as for his relationship with the powers that be... Judah has put himself in a situation where he's being invited to negotiate with the Seleucids. Think about that from where the story started. All any Greek at any point in the story has tried to do to Judah is kill him. And now he's being invited to send emissaries to discuss possible concessions, etc., etc., uh, this all comes together after the defeat of Nicanor and Georgius at Amos, after Lysias puts a guy named Ptolemaeus Macron, you know, kind of on the Maccabee file. Now, this Macron guy, if I'm him, I have to, <laughs> I have to agree with his decision-making process because he says, hmm, four people have been put in charge of dealing with this Maccabee problem. Two of them are dead. And the other two have been absolutely embarrassed by a bunch of no-good, barely-armed bandits. Maybe these people will listen to reason. So, Judah sends one of his brothers, as well as a few other people, to go try this out. Try negotiating with Lysias. Now, when I first read this for this show, I kind of expected this to be a real great put-down moment where, you know, the brother of Judah is going to go there and dress down the representative of the king in very high moral terms, but that's not how it goes. It actually goes pretty well. There's some things that they don't see eye to eye on, but they have a few areas of broad agreement. By the way, at these talks with Jonathan, Judah's brother, and um, the other Maccabees and the Greeks, there are Roman emissaries there. What are they doing there? Well, you know, they're just there to keep an eye on things and make sure... Make sure these talks are fair to everybody. Everybody gets heard. Part of me has to imagine, knowing what we know about Rome in the future, where I'm sitting, they, you know, look like wolves and are licking their chops over this nice chunk of land that's in turmoil. The Romans, by the way, in the talks, side with the Maccabees, generally, over the Greeks. And some people pointed out that this is probably too cause instability in a rival empire in the Seleucids, but other people think it might be the exact opposite, and the Romans didn't want instability, and they were siding with the Maccabees to try and just put an end to this whole thing. Who knows, but either way, the Romans are there. But in any case, this has got to be pretty exciting for the Maccabees, because here they have, you know, the Greek king willing to make some concessions. Well, at least the representative of the Greek king, Lysias. So, Lysias and his you know, kind of number two in this negotiation, Ptolemaeus Macron, are feeling conciliatory, want all this bloodshed to stop in this tiny, who cares, what's it called again, part of their empire. They think they've reached a kind of equilibrium, but 
these are decisions that Lysias just can't make. He needs approval from the king. Where's the king? The king is in Iran fighting, who knows, someone else somewhere else. So this is going to take almost a year for this message to just get to the king and then his answer to come back. So the Maccabees, you know, they're hanging out. They're doing whatever it is you do in the capital city for the first time in your life. Had to be pretty exciting. Antonoch must have been a marvel. In Antonoch, at the same time as these Maccabees doing their negotiations, is also Melanos, the high priest back in Jerusalem that had been installed there by Antonachus in the first part of this story. Now, Melanos and Lysias and Ptolemyus Macron had been doing their own negotiations for, you know, ideas and things like that to stop the Maccabees from just breaking everybody's stuff all the time and killing people over, you know, Hellenization, get them to understand that it's here to say, but make them feel a bit better about it. Everybody's working here. But Melanos and Lysias, they come up with their own plans and concessions that the Maccabees can make, and they send those off to Antinoch in Iran too. So we got two proposals going to Antinochus now. One from Melanos and Lysias, and one from the Maccabees and Lysias. And they're both different ideas as to how to mitigate this situation a little bit, make everybody happier, because Lysias is tired of fighting. <laughs> and like I said earlier, Ptolemyos Macron is probably, he's seen what happened to the last couple of guys who've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Judah. Well, it takes a couple of months for these messages to reach Antiochus, and then a couple of months for them to get back. So in the meantime, everybody in Jerusalem is living under everything Lysias could give them, basically, which were all things, all concessions that were kind of Melanos's ideas, because obviously the Maccabees are a bit more extreme. They want the temple back. They don't want any other gods in there. A bunch of stuff that Lysias doesn't have the authority to just do unilaterally. The king has to make those decisions. Well, after this peace, or stalemate, whatever you want to call it, between the Maccabees and the Hellenizers and the Greek armies that have been harassing the Maccabees, either stalemate or a peace, whatever you want to call it, it comes to an end when Antiochus's answers make it back to Jerusalem. Antiochus agrees with all of Melanos's suggestions, which, of course, includes leading Melanos on as high priest in Jerusalem, and absolutely shoots down all of the Maccabees' ideas. Obviously, this is no good for the Maccabees. Their whole point is, we haven't lost a single battle. Why shouldn't we get exactly what we want? Isn't that how this works? Well, when you're a king or an emperor, you ultimately get to decide how things work, and Antonacus Epiphanes decides it's going to go his way. The Maccabees will continue to Hellenize or be destroyed, and that's all there is to it. So, now we come to the major test for Judah Maccabee. As amazing as all of his victories have been so far, he hasn't been able to put together a force that could do large-scale assaults in any real way. It was all just kind of harassment and raids. And he's never been able to put out a force that could do anything in an open field, as we've talked about again and again and again. Well, he's not going to have a choice to get up to his normal shenanigans. Because this army Lysias brings is going to be bigger than the army that Sauron and Nicanor and Georgius had put together. According to First Maccabees, again, biggest grain of salt, absolutely not. But anyway, I'm going to tell you, 60,000 soldiers, 5,000 horsemen, more men than Alexander the Great conquered the world with. But... What we can take from that number is that it's very large, probably 20,000 men or something like that. Something, a big enough army that no group of rebels 
was going to really hold a candle to if they're all, you know, a professional army, which these guys are. This isn't Apollonius's band of whatever Greeks who had armor that he, you know, found bumming around any bar in Syria. This is the Seleucid Empire's army. When Antonacus went off east, First Maccabees says that he divided the army in half and took half with him and left half with Lysias to do whatever he needed to do with it. How the author of First Maccabees would know that is anybody's guess. He was probably guessing more than anything else. But Lysias has real power. Lysias has the army, and he takes a good chunk of it with him into Judea. Probably not 60,000 guys, 65,000 guys, but a real army big enough that no one in the entire world <laughs> at this point in the Hellenistic era, the late Hellenistic era, a Seleucid army, 20,000 guys, or something like that, is a force to be reckoned with anywhere it is in the world. This is Judah's real chance to join the upper echelon of military commanders. This is the next level for him and his revolting bandits turned professional, successful, sneaky, crafty army. Now, Lysias is going to take his larger-than-normal force down south of where most of the action has been so far, a bit closer to Jerusalem, in a place called beth -Zur. Now, Lysias is a guy who would have semi-regularly had command of troops and of an army this size. This would sort of be a sweet spot for him. He's done this before. Judah is in a situation where his army after uh, his army after the defeat of Nicanor and Georgius has swelled to a level that it probably was close to before he sent everybody home. He's got first Maccabee says around 10,000 guys and that's probably inflated but not too crazy at this point. So he's probably outnumbered for sure, maybe even doubled up on by the Greek army he's facing. He's also got to contend with commanding a force this size, assuming a bunch of his commanders probably even went home when he said they didn't have to stay if they don't want to. Lysias's force is too big for him to do anything really creative, too big to even get around really without being spotted. It's got proper scouts, proper encampments, proper fortifications. It's all very professional. Judah's only chance is to do what he has done so far and has worked so well. Be a pest. Harass. So that's what he does. He sends out his army down to meet Lysias's. But sneak attacks, kind of, at night. Raids would be a better way to put it. Now, according to First and Second Maccabees, I feel like a, most of this show is just telling you what First Maccabees says happened and then correcting it. But according to First and Second Maccabees, these raids are a tremendous success. First Maccabees says one of these raids kills 5,000 people. Actually, if you depending on how you read First Maccabees, it almost kind of, sort of, yada, yada, yada is a great battle. Uh, doesn't give you a lot of details. First Maccabee says 5,000 people are killed in this. Second Maccabee says 10,000 people are killed by the Maccabees in these raids. And eventually, before any real deployments and, you know, uh, failings can be formed up, etc., etc., happen, that you expect from war in this period, before any of that can happen, Lysias takes what's left of his army after these amazing Maccabean heroic raids, turns around and goes back to Antioch. It may well be that the Maccabees had these very successful raids that were too much for the Greeks to withstand, and that sent them home. 
most modern historians think that's unlikely the Seleucids would have been ready for these kinds of raids. It's sort of the only thing desperate groups like the Maccabees have left. It's not, you know, as special as the Maccabees are in that they keep winning. Like we talked about earlier in this series, this kind of thing happened in the ancient world where there'd be a violent revolt of a few hundred or a few thousand guys, sometimes maybe even a few tens of thousands of guys in more famous incidents like this and, you know, start doing real damage and beating real armies. But it's still, you know, the Seleucids know what's coming, you would think. So it's weird that their only move left would work so perfectly. There's a key detail that first in Mac that the books of Maccabees tell you about, but they kind of let you believe that Judah went and did this. That Judah went and did this great deed, slayed thousands of Greeks when they weren't expecting it, caught them sleeping, and that diminished their forces enough that they had to go home. But what's more likely is that these Maccabean raids were easily repelled, but before. Lysias could, before Lysias had favorable conditions to destroy Judah and the 10,000, 12,000, however many people had sided with him at this point, Lysias turned around and went home because in Judea he got the news that Antiochus Epiphanes died in Persia. Now, this isn't a story about Lysias, but to get in his head real quick. This is a huge problem. He's away from the capital, and he's a regent, and the sovereign is dead. His whole claim to power is through the sovereign, and the sovereign is dead now. So if he wants to maintain any level of power, he needs to get back to Antinoch immediately and get a hold of Antinochus's son, who is also named Antinochus. I think he's like an eight- or nine-year-old kid at this point. From the perspective of the people in Jerusalem... The Maccabees have been winning battle after battle. A lot of people are probably really terrified of them. Maybe even most people would be happier if everybody kind of chilled out <laughs> and let them, you know, run their business, do their thing, make, pray to whatever god they wanted. That's generally how people are, in my opinion. And the Maccabees did, you know, a lot of murder, a lot of thieving, a lot of banditry. They're no different than any rebel group ever. But people would know that they were winning battles. And that, in any point in history, is going to make you popular. It's going to make people think God, in this case, for these people, or the gods for their enemies, are on your side in some way. And Judah had done some real good for some people in this region. Some of the concessions that Lysias had allowed until this moment of conflict between him and Judah, all of the people in Jerusalem would have been aware of and presumably would have been happy about. Some easing of restrictions on the old faith. In any case, it was Jewish people telling Greek people what to do, which any Jewish person, after being ruled by different types of Greeks for hundreds of years would have been a bit proud of, I think, anyway. So Judah's political popularity in Jerusalem in this entire interim period, and really throughout his entire rebellion, has, his fame popularity has just been growing and growing and growing. Like we said, it kind of ticked to a new level when he defeated Saron, and now, after this no contest, should we call it, uh... Very lucky happenstance. Well, you know, I call it lucky. They'd certainly call it a miracle. And Second Maccabees does call it a miracle and says God kills Antinochus for harassing the Maccabees and gloats about it. Whether it's a miracle or not, I don't know. But certainly can't call it a military victory, at least not in my opinion. Whatever you want to call it after this victory... The Maccabees stroll into Jerusalem 
and they certainly look like conquerors. Now, the Maccabees are able to get into Jerusalem because there's no Greek army there to protect it, and the Hellenizers are all kind of spooked by Lysias just taking off on them like that. So Melanos, the remaining Hellenizers who don't flee the city, and whatever is left of the Seleucid garrison go into the Acre. And the Acre is a large citadel-type thing, almost right next to the Second Temple, very close to it. The Maccabees don't worry about the Acre for now. When they get into Jerusalem, they head straight toward the Second Temple. And when they get there, they tear down the altars to Zeus and whatever other god. They destroy them, burn them, reconsecrate the temple, remove all the idols. And Judah, as the de facto ruler in the temple in Jerusalem, declares eight days of celebration. This is the origin of the Hanukkah story. If you're thinking, hey, where's the oil lasting eight days and all that, that comes later. So later additions to be included into the Torah. This is the original, original story of Hanukkah. It had to be pretty surreal for the Maccabees. A lot of them probably imagined they were never going to make it to this point, probably lost faith. But here they are. They trusted in themselves in Judah and in God and now they control the temple and the city. Judah still has all kinds of problems. The Maccabees are surrounded by other Greek Seleucid and Egyptian cities and towns. Some of them with Jews in them. Some of them have no Jews in them at all. But they're surrounded by enemies. The king died. Lysias and Judah never really got to have their fight. So that threat hasn't gone anywhere. Just because the king is dead, the Seleucid state will not disappear, and the Maccabees still have crimes to answer for. And as a symbol of all that, literally hanging over the image of the liberated second temple is the Acre with the Hellenizers inside and Melanos plotting their next moves. Judah has many, many problems on the horizon, but for today, Judah Maccabee is the hammer of Hanukkah. Thanks for listening to Religious Wars. Just want to take a second to apologize for the long delay between part one and part two of this series. The delay between part two and three will be nowhere near as long. That is a Religious Wars guarantee. If you want to reach out to the show for any reason, you can uh, email us at religiouswars01 at gmail.com. That's Religious Wars, spelled like the title of the show, 01, the numbers, at gmail.com. In the name of God, I